Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Discover what's possible when people impacted by autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, here's your host, Rachel Harmon. Hello, everyone. Our guest today is Brian Middleton. Brian is an autism self-advocate, a board-certified behavior analyst, and the host of the O Behave podcast. He is also the creator of The Bearded Behaviorist, an initiative dedicated to the dissemination of behavior science and the inclusion of trauma-informed care standards in applied behavior analysis and other human services. In this conversation, Brian shares what it was like for him to be bullied in school and how he learned about his autism as an adult. We also discuss his theory around why autism can be seen as both a disorder and a neurotype, the disagreement between the neurodiversity movement and the field of ABA, and the basic components of acceptance and commitment training, also known as ACT. In this episode, discover what's possible when you beard the lion in his den. For more information about Brian and his work, please visit our show notes at autismknowsnoborders.com. And now, I present you, Brian Middleton. Hi, Brian. Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Thank you for being here today. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me onto the show. Could you please briefly introduce yourself? I am a human being who happens to be autistic. I love humans. Humans are great. I have uh, lived a life of wanting to discover and understand the world around me, and that includes people. And so initially, my special interest was history, just delving deep into history. And when I went to university, I studied history. And because I was special needs as a kid, and uh, actually my IEP, Individualized Education Plan, was around uh, nonverbal learning disorder, which was a misdiagnosis. I was aware of special education and and had a a love for it because I had some really great teachers. And so when a school counselor suggested that I double major in special education, I jumped at it and uh, fell in love with special education. I taught exactly two semesters of history, social sciences, that sort of stuff. And the rest of my seven-year career as a special ed teacher was special ed, like, or as a teacher was special ed and uh, loved it. Definitely challenging, but, but wonderful. And um, my third job as a teacher, because my first two years were more kind of low man on the totem pole going through all the, all the learning processes. So my third job, I was hired as the behavior special ed teacher for Canyon View Middle School in Cedar City, Utah. And that was like being thrown into the deep end with Jaws. (laughs) And it was fun and it was hard and it was hard. And did I say it was hard? (laughs) And what was hard about it? My schooling didn't prepare me to support the kids that I was having thrown at me. And I say that because that's, that's how it felt. But because I am, am passionate and, and I love helping. It's, it's always been a, a part of me. I, I love the Boy Scouts. I'm an Eagle Scout and all that cool stuff there. But uh, I couldn't 
not do my best and give my all. And anytime I failed, I would tear myself apart. And so that just drove me deeper into trying to understand. And so I started exploring and doing reading on my own. And I went to an, an autism conference, a little regional autism conference, and the keynote speaker who I really need to look up her name because I've forgotten her name. I'm terrible with names, but she was speaking and it resonated. And I was supposed to go to six other classes and I didn't. I, I spent the rest of the conference just talking with her after she was done with her keynote. And um, she said, have you thought about becoming a BCBA? And I said, BCB what? <laughs> and she said BCBA. And I'm like, well, I'm sorry, I'm NGWA. That stands for not good with acronyms. <laughs> so could you tell me what that means? And she introduced me to board certified behavior analyst. So as I do, I delved in, I researched, and I stepped into it fully cognizant of a lot of the problems that members of the autism community have with applied behavior analysis. Mm -hmm. But I also stepped into it fully cognizant of the solidity of the science and that like with any science, there were some things that were an issue and there were things that were great. So I don't have this, I don't like blinders. I like looking at things and I like trying to find the truth as the truth is. So, you know, there's my perception, your perception, and there's something in the middle is the reality of the thing. So, you know, I pursued it. And when I went into my post-master certification, because I have a master's in education, I went to a university and was in classes and was learning about all this cool stuff in a different level. And uh, I got a little frustrated with a professor because that professor, whose name I will not share to protect the guilty, asked us to share how we could improve the class. And uh, I've been down this road before, so I made sure to very carefully write out what my suggestions were in a way that was very positive and referencing towards things that we could do. And then I made sure my wife and my best friend read over my post before I posted it. So that way it was not coming off as anything other than, well, you asked this very important question and I'm taking it seriously and I want to help improve because that's what you asked. And I received a very long email telling me that I was using problem-oriented thinking, and he censored me. He took down my post. What were some of your ideas? I pointed out that there was a lot of negative reinforcement and positive punishment for completing assignments, and that there was a lot of contrived characteristics to post, so that way, that way the post, instead of, like, because one of the things that we had was a, a requirement to comment on each other's posts and the comments were like me too and stuff like that. And I'm, and I'm like, what if we would remove that, that comment requirement and go towards quality mm. of sharing our ideas and that would encourage more discussion. Mm -hmm. And what if instead of it being, you don't get points for making the comments, it's by participating in it, you get points. And then if you have more, comments that are that are meaningful and we can have a rubric defining what meaningful means so that way it's not subjective that you get bonus points instead of doing and you know just 
coming up with a little contrived token economy. And it wasn't like the most thought out thing, but it was, it was like, Hey, thank you for this opportunity to let me share some ideas on how to improve these or some things that I see that we could do. Yeah. And you know, the professor's response could have been, I'll take those under consideration. Right. And and then if he didn't like him, he didn't like him. That's it's his class. But instead I got censored and I got positively punished again, which like the ethics of behavior analysis is we shouldn't be relying on punishment. Yeah. And, and so and my response was to have the typical reaction that one would have when receiving punishment, which was a emotional reaction, anger, frustration, anxiety, those sorts of things. But I, I have to thank him. I, I really have to thank him because if it weren't for him, I wouldn't have started Bearded Behaviorist because my thought process was, screw you, I'm going to make ABA fun. (laughs) (laughs) And so that's what I did is December um, 8th of 2018, I started a little Facebook page. My best friend and now business partner, Robert Ennis, designed my logo, which is um, a silhouette of me when I was particularly untrimmed. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Very beardy. um, very beardy. <laughs> and uh, there's there's a joke to bearded behaviorist, um, as as I do. I, I love puns and jokes. And I love collecting old sayings. That's, that's part of my special interest with history. And um, there's an old saying that's not currently in use, but I hope it comes back. It goes something like this, bearding the lion in its den. And that's referring to in, I think, 1 Samuel uh, of the Old Testament, when David of David and Goliath Mm-hmm. The story that was told was about how one of David's sheep was taken by a lion and that David pursued the lion into the cave to save the sheep, grabbed the lion by the beard or mane and slew it. And so the term to beard the lion in its den or bearding originally meant to confront a problem head on. Oh, interesting. So. Okay. It's a, it's a multi-level thing. It's a joke. It's also serious. And so that's the reason why I go for Bearded Behaviorist. And one of my podcasts, the O Behave podcast, is also a joke because to behave is to do anything that a living organism emits. So to say O Behave is to say live. <laughs> <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and and I don't know. I just I kind of love making those little connections and and, yeah. and celebrating life. And uh, that's kind of the foundation of my values of 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 how I pursue things. Is yes, there's challenge, there's struggle, there's hardship, and I definitely have had my share of it, and then some, I'm sure. But what can I do to celebrate life? What can I do to celebrate the things that are great? Not to the detriment of addressing the problems. Because again, bearded behaviorist is about addressing the things face on, head on. Let's let's take care of it. Let's not pretend it's not there. So yeah, that's that's um, my life in a Cliff Notes version. <laughs> I'm right. sure there's a lot more I could say and share. Yeah. But... Well, thank you, Brian. Let's talk about your autism. When did you first realize that you were different? Oh, first realized I was different seven or eight years old. What did you notice about yourself? The other kids didn't like me, that I kept on doing things wrong, but I wasn't sure what I was doing wrong and no one would tell me, Mm. that uh, 
adults were a lot more patient with me and more willing to to help me out, but peers weren't. Mm. Those were the big things that kind of stuck out to me. I, I was I was lucky. My parents had a, a bad experience with my older sister in public school, and so my dad's job allowed for us to be homeschooled. And so my mom took on a lot of the homeschooling and then later on found a charter school that was based in a, a couple hours away, but they had a kind of a distance program where they provide curriculum. And um, this is before the internet really took off. So part of it was when I was a tween and teen that my parents could go out and, and find people to teach subjects. And then they would be paid from the charter school to teach the subject. So my geometry and algebra teacher was a, a civil engineer who worked on the Bay Bridge in San Francisco. My chemistry teacher is uh, the head of the Sacramento Water Lab, last I checked. Uh, although at the time he was, you know, an employee there, but, you know, this is years ago. So one of my art teachers was a professional artist who lived locally, who was willing to teach us, mm-hmm. you know, that sort of stuff. And so it, it kind of offered some really cool opportunities. And the flip side of that is it also created a buffer. So my exposure to peers was limited to Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts, to those classes with peers. And there were small groups and they tended to be peers who were with parents who were also having those attitudes of like, we want our kids, you know, we don't want our kids to struggle. So we're putting them in a situation where they struggle less. Uh, and then of course, church. Mm-hmm. And so between, between all those settings, like my, my exposure was definitely limited. And so therefore I, I believe that I encountered less naturalistic punishment as a result and received more naturalistic reinforcement for making choices that were big air quotes here, right <laughs> in the social context. Yeah. So you said that you were misdiagnosed with what was that? Uh, nonverbal learning disorder. Okay. There's a lot of very similar characteristics to autism, but there's not a lot of emphasis on stimming sensory issues, those sorts of things. It, it focuses predominantly on misreading social cues. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what the DSM-5 did with NLD, but typically back in the 90s, like with diagnosis of Asperger's versus um, autism, typically it had to do with some, someone being diagnosed on, on it as having a lot more to do with whether there was somebody who was trained in that area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's a fun one. And I was I, I received the diagnosis when I was fourteen. So it was later in life because I was very verbal and very communicative, and so it was I I was pretty good at just going along and doing things. And so therefore, there what my my parents didn't feel the need to seek out a diagnosis until I hit the big wall. And again, part of that was the buffering from homeschooling because. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that if I had been going to elementary school and middle school, that it would have, that wall would have hit much harder, much faster. Yeah. Did you have any true friendships? My dogs. <laughs> and uh, I thought I had a true friend when I was a little kid, um, but it was like a little kid style friendship and, and very quickly moved away when he started to mature more than me. When I was, 
15, 16, I, I had a couple friends who were younger than me that we, we connected really well and we maintained connection pretty decently up until about 18. And then they kind of drifted away. One of them because, well, this is me attributing. Uh, I don't know if this really happened, but one of them drifted away because he was more into the cool crowd and I definitely wasn't cool. Mm. And the other one drifted away because he moved. So did you receive direct bullying from the other kids? Direct and indirect. When I was eight at church, I, I, I told a stupid knock-knock joke. It was really dumb. But, you know, like it was like I wanted to get attention from my peers. And uh, apparently a couple of the peers didn't like it and um, got shoved against the water fountain, socked in the gut. And that resulted in us leaving that congregation because one of the boys was the son of the leader of the congregation and the other one was the, um, the nephew. Mm. So there was no way they were leaving. Yeah, there's no way they were leaving. And, and the, the congregation leader's response was, well, what did your son do wrong? And so, you know, there was that. I will say that years later, both of those boys reached out to me and apologized. Oh. So I don't want to make anybody out to be a villain. The reality is, is that I was different and they didn't understand how to deal with different, which is one of the reasons why acceptance training is so important, especially for children. Mm-hmm. Because when we when we learn how to accept other people who are different, instead of it being us versus them, it's all of us versus the challenges that the world presents us. Yeah. So that's a, a big plus, um, I have to say. And I think part of the reason why I still have this attitude of celebration, because like, yeah, something hard happened and it sucked so hard. But um flip side of that is growth happened. Yeah. And that's big. And we need to focus on that. Sorry. Get a little emotional here. (laughs) Don't be sorry. Thank you for sharing that. No problem. I know how it must feel to open up and really be vulnerable. And I really appreciate you sharing your story. Thank you. And you know, there are other kids out there right now who are being bullied and Maybe if some parents are listening to this and take something from it, whether it's educating their kids to not be those bullies, you know, that is a change that you're making. Yeah. And, you know, there was a lot of indirect bullying. There was a lot of um, social shunning. Like a lot of the the misconceptions when it comes to autism is that, that we want to isolate. We don't want to be around other people. And that there's certainly people who are like that. But humanity as a whole, and that includes autism, and that and that's the reason why I say I am a human first before I say I am autistic. We have a desire to connect. Now everybody's desire differs. So, like I have a, a very good friend who he he is um, he's himself. Uh, he is whatever he is. I don't I don't try to identify people as anything other than a person and a friend. And he and I, when we're talking at work because we work together. We have amazing, fun conversations that just go deep and they hit the the nitty gritty and awesomeness. And then um, when he's by himself, he wants to be by himself. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't have the urge to seek out social connection because he recharges on his own. He's an introvert. And years ago, I, I would be upset by that. 
because, you know, I, I encountered other introverts and I thought it was something having to do with me. But now I see him for who he is and it's like, hey, you do you, man. I'm glad I could spend the time I spend with you. Mm-hmm. And that's, a, I think, a big part of acceptance is accepting that, you know, somebody else may not have the same drives as you or their reinforcers may not be the same reinforcers, but it's okay because as long as they can gain the connection that they need and you can gain the connection that you need without harming other people, that's the key right there. Yeah. I really like that. And bringing it back to that human level, just being compassionate with each other. And there are so many different ways right now at this time in history where people can be divided and there's so much polarization and so many different identities that people put on. And if we can just remove all of that and really look at the person that is in front of us for who they are and understand that we all really just want the same things at the end of the day, you know, what better of a place this could be? I know that sounds so cliche, but... Sometimes people forget. <laughs> yeah, it's it's um it takes practice. Not always, but by default when we're feeling under threat, we want to protect our reinforcement. We want to protect our things that are that we perceive as us. And actually you 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 asked me to talk about this, so I'm going to go ahead and and, and bring it in. Mhm. Acceptance and commitment therapy slash training. Um, I, I do the slash because the T is really important. It can be training or therapy. Actually talks about this idea. So it's a it's an idea called self as context, and it's it's kind of a rough idea to get your head around. But I'm going to try my best to explain it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to explain it with a counter idea to it, uh, which is self as content. So to start with, self as content is where I am this thing. I am the emotions that I feel. I am my history that I experience. I am the identity that I take on. I am 100,000% these things. And um, so I, I use as an example, an allegory or a, a, a parable, I guess, that I've been using for years. And I didn't realize that I was using it with self as context and self as content in mind. But Imagine if the thing, the story that you tell yourself is a sword or a shield. And I'll use an example of somebody who's suffering from cancer, because that's something anybody could experience. So you get the people who are using it as a shield. They're hiding behind it. I can't because I have cancer. And they're, they're hiding behind it and using it as something to protect themselves. And then you got the people who use it as a sword and they lash out. You should do this because I have cancer. And they they stab and and slash at people. Mm. And that's self as content. That's a symbolic way of looking at that. But if you flip it to self as context, which is getting a degree of separation. So saying I am a person who happens to be experiencing cancer, then it changes the story. Not a lot. You're still a person who's experiencing cancer or whatever the challenge is that you're facing. But it takes that sword or shield and turns it into a banner that you hold high and say, this is hard, but I can do it. Mm -hmm. And there are so many people, and I use cancer as an example because I have a lot of friends who are older. And so I've, I've, I've interacted with a lot of people who've gone through similar life challenges. And I've seen this happen 
over and over and over again with those people. And the people who are the most amazing, and even if they lose the struggle to cancer, they never lose themselves. Never. Those are the people who are self as context. Mm -hmm. Those are the people who are saying, this is who I am. I am the thing that experiences. I'm the thing that observes. And I might experience depression, despair, anger, hate, frustration, joy, elation, all those emotions. But those aren't me. I'm experiencing them. Mm -hmm. The me is the thing that observes. And it, it's not a very natural way of seeing it to start with. But as you practice it and you learn that skill, it, it changes everything. I used to be a very angry person. I find that kind of hard to believe. You you haven't stopped smiling this whole <laughs> time I've been seeing you on screen. But it's it, it's the difference. It's the difference of the content versus context. And I think that a lot of the challenges we face in this world are because people are getting so stuck in their story that they're not seeing that I am not the sum of my experiences. I'm the sum of what I take from my experiences. Mm -hmm. They need to be what I take from them. Humans are the only creature on this planet that can time travel. We can go back on our minds and time will travel back to the experience that we had that is horrific, that's traumatizing, that sucks. And we can shift our perspective so that instead of me being that little boy who had a knife to my wrist, ready to kill myself on top of my dog's grave, who is only saved because one of my other dogs ran up and knocked the knife out of my hand. Instead of that, we can see the, the struggle as a way to help us to grow. Yeah. Sorry. That's okay. But I, I definitely, I hear you and I get what you're saying. Like a lot of times I think we do that playback loop of that thing that happened in the past and we are, even though it happened in the past, it's still occurring for us in the present. And if we want to overcome whatever that breakdown was, we need to be looking at it from the present moment and maybe even a different possibility. Yeah. And from there, we can create something new. We can be someone who we want to be instead of continuing to live in that story that we've created. The term that ACT uses is ruminate, that cycle of, of, of living it over and over. Mm -hmm. And I know that cycle so well, and I'm so glad I'm out of it. Yeah. I was diagnosed with clinical depression, so like I've experienced how far it can take you and don't want to go back. I'm, I'm very happy where I'm at now because where I'm at now, I can experience the full gambit of feelings. Can I ask you something? Why are you feeling so emotional about it right now? Where is that emotion coming from? It's sadness, but it's also joy. Mm -hmm. Because looking back, it was hard. And I didn't see any way out. But I'm so happy I made it out. Yeah. How did you get out of it? <laughs> Uh, well, in that moment, the, the moment I talked about, 
that was more just coping <laughs> until I until I got to a better place. Um, and how old were you then? I can't remember exactly, but I think it was at twelve or thirteen. Okay. Yeah, I don't I don't remember the exact time, but it was somewhere in that age age range. Um, but uh, the way that I coped, which coping doesn't necessarily mean good. The way they coped was to get angry because uh, anger is a secondary emotion. I like to say that anger is the, the uh, anger, anxiety, um, fear. They're all secondary emotions that result from feeling helpless. And so I got angry and like, I wasn't always angry type thing, but I was definitely pretty angry um, and, and pretty adamant and, one thing that characterizes me is that I am not a person who will sit down and shut up. <laughs> and that, that's true to this day, even though I'm not angry or not as angry as I used to be. The anger's there, but now I can look at the anger and instead of looking at it as, so I hate how people dissociate. They say, that's not me. And I'm like, no, no, no. Anger is a part of who I am. Like I, I feel that emotion but I can accept the emotion and then ask myself, what's the next step? What's the thing that I can do? How do I move towards my values? Yeah. So that was where the coping came in, but um, it wasn't until about 25, 25, 26 that um, I made one of my true friends, Robert, Robert Ennis, my business partner, my friend. He is also neurodiverse. He's uh He's, he has Tourette's and he became a sensory organ for me for social things. And flip side is I became a sensory organ for him for, uh, for perceiving other things that I perceive. And we've been, we've been a great help to each other. Mm -hmm. And, uh, <laughs> So even before I knew what a behavior analysis was, I was receiving, and by the way, I did receive uh, behavior analytic support when I was a kid uh, through something called Scottish Rights, but I didn't know it at the time. And it was before the behavior analysis certification board came into being. And thankfully I had a good experience with it mm -hmm. because, and this is important. There have a lot of been a lot of people who've had bad experiences and behavior analysis as a science needs to collectively take responsibility for that and change. Mm -hmm. Like I am as responsible as any other behavior analyst out there. And I will be even more responsible if I don't speak out against the problems. Mm -hmm. And that's important to say. So sorry, that's a little sidetrack there. Um, no, that's okay. And I, I want to get back to that. Let's just bookmark that and we'll come back, but you can finish what you were saying. Yeah. So it was an experiment with me and Bob where, where he would point out some things and I would try them out. And then of course it wasn't just him and me interacting with each other. We both are research people. We just love researching. We, we dive deep into and, and reading. He's really good at looking up articles and research. And I'm really good at finding books and, and reading those uh, typically through audio. Cause I'm a big audiophile, but, um, the long and short of it was because of his friendship and support, I was able to identify, uh, alter, address different things, including when I read the, a book uh, about body language, uh, What Everybody is Saying by Larry Naveen, coming to him and being like, is this true? And him 
who has been responding to body language instinctually going, is it? And then us exploring it together and then uh, getting to the point that now I'm pretty dang good at reading body language because it, it, it's a skill. You learn it. It's uh, learning through consequences. That's literally what um, uh, behavior analysis is all about. And, and anytime people get lost and, and forget that, it, they're, they're missing the point that we all learn through consequences regardless of our, our neurological area or niche. And so that made a big difference. And we still learn from each other. We were talking last night and, and just talking about perceptions of, of what we think people will do versus what they actually do and how we can improve on each other and, and grow each other. It's, ah, it's a wonderful, wonderful friendship. And the same thing for my wife, Heather. She really helps me to grow. We're always looking for ways to, to help each other improve in a kind, loving way. So, Oh, that's great. That's the end of that anecdote. Uh, <laughs> if you want to go back to the behavior analyst thing. <laughs> yeah, well, so a couple of things I wanted to go back to. First, was there anything else you wanted to add about ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy? So you've talked about self as context. Do you want to just briefly go over the other components of it? Yeah. And maybe you could also just explain how this ties into applied behavior analysis. Definitely. So um, to start with how it ties in, ACT is founded on a experimental analysis theory called relational frame theory. And relational frame theory is a continuation of B.F. Skinner's or verbal operants. Now... Um, some people are probably who are behavior analysts and know about this stuff are probably screaming because they're like, it's not the same. And so there's some camps out there. There's some people who are saying it's, it's, it's totally different and others they are saying it's the same. Mm-hmm. And that's what happens in science. You have disagreements and that's, that's cool. I love it. Me personally, I see it as a continuation and a, and a beneficial continuation. But the premise of relational frame theory is that we make relational connections between things. So probably the best example is think of a song that you loved at one point and then something tragic in your life happened. And now that when you hear that song, it brings you pain. Mm. That is our relational frame, relational networks in our brain, making those connections. And that actually leads beautifully into explaining the first concept in act, which is called cognitive or verbal fusion and that's the idea that we fuse f-u-s-e or fusion f-u-s-i-o-n with an idea and an emotion that we connect those two together and then when we get those two things connected together um, that results in us being stuck or it results in us solving problems because the reason why this relational frame is such a big deal is because we solve problems. The fact that that you and I can talk to each other across the world over electricity being turned on and off, because that's what ones and zeros are is, is the uh, one is the electricity on and and zero is electricity off. And we can have a, an amazing conversation that's recorded and that can be distributed to other people is because somebody took this, idea that seemingly was unconnected and connected with this other idea was seemingly unconnected and we discovered something new. And it's a wonderful thing, but it's also the source of our pain and suffering. 
And so the core premise of acceptance commitment therapy is that life is filled with pain and that's inevitable, but it doesn't have to be filled with suffering. And so this is where diffusion comes in. So think fusion, but defusion, D-E-F-U-S-I-O-N. Yeah, diffusion. Mm -hmm. It's the ability to disconnect the feeling and the idea from each other. And there's a couple different techniques. And the, the thing that I love about ACT is that it, there, there are so many ways to do it. And you find your way. There's no wrong or right way as long as you accomplish the thing. I diffuse through humor. I love making jokes. But you can use a diffusion technique to avoid the pain, which will it will backfire. Because... The next part of the process is once you've diffused, you have to accept. And acceptance isn't something that is easy. It's easy to describe, but it's not easy to do. And um, the easiest way that I've come up with describing acceptance is walking downstairs. When you first start walking downstairs, it's scary. It is frightening because you have to fall forward. You have to let your step go down. And you could certainly control your muscles every step of the way, but that would be exhausting. So you have to accept that there comes a point where it just has to happen. And interestingly, when you diffuse and you accept, it not only deals with emotional pain, but it can actually alter physical pain. There's been research that's been done with ACT on burn victims. And without painkillers, they have significantly reduced, I don't remember the exact estimated percentage, but significantly reduced the pain that these people who are dealing with something that's horrific are actually experiencing. Could you actually just go back to diffusion and give me another example? So you said that you use humor. Mm -hmm. What's another way to diffuse? So we all have that inner voice, that inner judge that's telling us something. So you can perceive that thing, that voice, and you can, you can sing it as a song. So like, for example, I know somebody who they like using happy birthday, uh, the song, happy birthday. So they'll, um, you're really stupid. You can't do this. You are going to fail and it's a gonna be okay. <laughs> like something like that, where it's, it's basically, Allowing yourself to have some distance. And so uh, another way to diffuse is to take a short phrase or word and try to embody all the emotion into it and then repeat that thing once per second for 35 to 40 seconds, which that's actually one of the, the studies that they've done on that to see how consistently. Um, so if, if, for example, I have a, a fear of, of getting in the car because I got into a really bad car accident. I, that's not me, but that's a, mm -hmm. that's a very real fear. So if I were to say car, 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 all the way through the 40 uh, seconds, by the time that time is done, it just turns into cup, uh, r. that's it in my mouth. And the emotion is pulled away from it. Mm, okay. And if you go out there, there's uh, the, the, the world's longest running Yahoo group is an acceptance and commitment therapy, continuously running Yahoo group is an acceptance and commitment therapy group. There's tons of Facebook groups, forums, chats, 
I know there's folks on Reddit, this massive community of people who are wanting to support and help each other and share how they diffuse, how they accept all these different things. And it's, it's wonderful because the research has actually shown that you don't need a therapist to use ACT. Mm-hmm. As long as you're consistently practicing, the outcomes are pretty much the same. And if you have somebody who can support you and encourage you to, to do it, then the outcomes get better mm-hmm. because you're, you're learning how to use these skills. And literally there's six discrete observable skills that can be done that if you consistently practice and use them once a week, once a day, whatever you want to do, you're going to increase your psychological flexibility and strength. And so a lot of people assume that behavior analysis is uh, behaviorist. We don't, we don't believe thoughts, feelings, emotions, memories, those sorts of things are behavior. And that, that's, a, that's a mistake because there was a behaviorism that came before radical behaviorism called methodological behaviorists. And they said, if you can't observe it, it's not a behavior. <laughs> and the reason why B.F. Skinner was radical and, and those that followed him is because we're like, no, those are behaviors. Those are, th- those are real things. Like just because the observer is one person doesn't mean that it's not a thing. And that's the reason that RFT and, and by relation act was able to be developed was because the question was act asked. Now, um, I like to say that ACT is the, the baby of behavior analysis and cognitive behavioral therapy because there's a lot of ideas that CBT has that were right because, you know, theorizing and those sorts of things. And so there's kind of a partnership that's going on there. And so cognitive behavioral therapists who have training in ACT are capable of, of providing that. But the, the principal researcher and, and founder of ACT, uh, Stephen C. Hayes, I was introduced to ACT at an ACT conference for behavior analysts, and somebody asked about whether or not Dr. Hayes would expect there to be licensure requirements for ACT, and his response was, why? (laughs) (laughs) Because he doesn't want it to be limited. He wants people to access this thing. Mm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And all the ACT folks, the, the, the specialists that I talked to and I learned from it, I am by no means a specialist. I am not an expert on this, but I'm learning and I'm passionate. And that's the key is you don't need to be an expert to, to learn and to apply. And I make sure that all this stuff that I'm talking about, I'm applying with all my kids. doesn't matter if they're non-vocal. doesn't matter if they're a little kid. doesn't matter if they're a teenager or a tween. It's always being applied. And I'm always looking for ways of helping these kids learn these skills because heaven help me, if I had had that skill as a kid, I wouldn't have been at that place where there was a knife to my wrist. Mm. But the flip side of that is if I hadn't have been in that place where that knife was at my wrist, I wouldn't be able to have the compassion and understanding I have now. Mm-hmm. So there's my time traveling. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, you're taking what happened to you and using it to help other people so that they won't have to feel that way. Yeah. So the, the, the core components of ACT are diffusion, acceptance, being in the present moment, values, committed action, and self as context. 
and they can be applied in any they're not sequential they can it can be in any order but the key there is that being in the present moment can't be for the purposes of escaping the acceptance does need to occur because you can be mindful you can be present as a way to escape the feelings that you have and and the the reason why i make this big deal and i kind of jumped ahead of myself there but I, i'll i'll bring it back is because that remember that relational frame thing that we do where we like to make those connections well if you're trying not to feel the pain don't feel the pain don't feel the pain don't feel the pain do anything but feel the pain try to try to escape the pain that's just going to increase the pain mm-hmm. and what's going to do is even if you find a temporary relief for the pain like substances drugs alcohol video games pornography all those things even if you find a temporary relief for the pain by the very act of trying to avoid the pain you're going to connect the pain with that thing don't think about a pink elephant well, I'm thinking about a yellow rhinoceros. Well, yeah, but by thinking about a red, yellow rhinoceros, you're trying not to think about the pink elephant. So you are thinking about the pink elephant even as you're thinking about a yellow rhinoceros. Mm-hmm. Okay, Brian, let's go backwards a little bit. I want to talk about your discovery of your diagnosis because I know that happened later in your life. Mm-hmm. Could you elaborate more on that? So my my first special education job was at Pineview Middle School in St. George, Utah. And I had a couple uh, of students who um, were autistic. And my education hadn't really prepared me for being able to support autism. Like there's a lot of, there, there's a lot of stuff that was said, but when I encountered these kids, I was like, huh, I'm talking to my younger me. That's weird. Mm-hmm. And then so I filled an emergency position as a special ed teacher at, at Pineview Middle School. A special ed teacher had gotten fed up, verbally fused, cognitively fused, and, and walked out. And they had been having a long-term substitute for two months before I got hired onto the job. And so I came in and filled that role. And it was definitely like being thrown in the deep end. And it was a lot of fun. And it was, it was really hard, too. But... Uh, that gave me some good experience. And then my next job was at Diamond Valley Elementary School in Washington County. So it wasn't in St. George. It was, it was still a bit of a drive. It was actually a longer drive than going to St. George from Cedar City. But I was, I was a special ed teacher for an elementary school. And my emphasis was more secondary. But I was like, sure, I'll give it a try. Like, you know, I've, I've got some exposure to early childhood education. And again, it was like, this is younger me. All these kids, like, yeah, they're, yes, they're their own people and they're unique. Like, but like all these things that they're dealing with and experiencing are very similar to what I dealt with and experienced. What were some of those things that you were seeing? The stimming, you know, you, you talk about stimming, but then you see it and you're like, oh, oh, that's stimming. For me as a kid, my stims were rubbing things, soft things. This one's kind of gross, picking my nose <laughs> uh, and and uh, uh, plucking, pulling on things. I like to pull on my ear, joint compression, mm-hmm. kind of grabbing, that sort of stuff. Those are a lot of my big stims. I went through a phase where hawking and spitting was a stim. 
I'm very glad I'm out of that phase. That's <laughs> no, <laughs> um, some of them were kind of gross. Um, my biggest stim that I still have now is I bite my nails and I stroke, I still do the rubbing and stroking. You can't see it, but I've been, you know, rubbing my arm, that sort of stuff. When I, when a little kid walks up to me and they see my, my big fuzzy arms, they, they start rubbing and I'm like, oh, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't think it's weird at all. I think it's great. I didn't really have any of the flapping or anything like that. Although I did walk on my toes quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And, uh, a, a stem that I'm, I'm trying to transfer and I actually need to address it right now out is, um, when I'm sitting in a chair, I tend to push my feet into the ground. I don't tend to relax unless it's a relaxing chair. Mm. And that one's kind of a problem because that's causing some joint issues for me now in my older age, but I'm trying to figure out how to transfer it to, to something else because stimming isn't a problem unless it causes harm. And that's something that I, I really try to emphasize. In fact, a story that I shared a little bit ago, but I, I still love it. I call this client REM now because uh, I was kind of last minute schedule put on sitting with him with during lunch. And I said something, he's non-vocal. And I said something that made me think of REM, the band. And so I was like, hey, man, let's listen to REM. So I pull it up on my phone and we listen to REM for an hour and we stim together. And, you know, I gave him joint compressions and he would do his flapping thing and I would do it with him and we connect. And, and like at the end of it, it was just so relaxing and enjoyable because like he, it, a couple of times he indicated he didn't like the song, so I skip it, all that sort of thing. But it was it was about connecting and and not worrying about a lot of things that other people worry about. Like a lot of people are really wanting to suppress stimming. I think that's just silly. Yeah, and it can cause harm. Yeah, traumatizing. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. but back to it. I'm bringing it back in. Sorry, reel it in here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so you saw all these kids who you were seeing yourself in. And so I started researching and I started with nonverbal learning disorder to try to understand that. And then I, then I started looking into autism and as a part of the, of being a special ed teacher in the United States, there's something called child find, which is the drive, the requirement to identify children with special needs and provide them with support. And so a big part of my job is identification, which is not the same as diagnosis, even though it basically is. Let's, let's be totally honest. It, it, it basically is the process. Um, but we take data, we'd see how they're, it's affecting their academics and their social life and that sort of thing. And then, then we'd uh, do testing. Um, some of them are questionnaires. Some of them are, are cognitive and academic testing, those sorts of things. And based off of certain patterns, kids would be identified with different ways. And so I, I'm, I'm experienced with administering a lot of those different things. And uh, I happened to find out that with one of the testing packets that were ordered that they included adult tests and the school district just threw those away. And so I asked if I could take one and I tested myself and I scored in the autism spectrum disorder range with it. And so I started collecting more data. I, I went and I got a hold of my original IEP, which my mother had saved. I tried reaching out to the school, but they had actually stopped saving the records. But luckily, my mom had it. And I started gathering all this information together. And I went to my, um, my general practitioner, doctor, my family doctor, 
And I said, I think I'm autistic. And then I proceeded to overwhelm him with all the data I collected. <laughs> and, and, and he's like, okay. <laughs> and he, and he, he, he just entered it in. And I'm like, wait, you're not going to have me do any tests? And he's like, you did everything. <laughs> you did, I don't need to do anything. <laughs> How old were you at this point? Um, 26. Okay. 26 or 27. Uh, I, somewhere in that range. I'm 35 now. So it's been okay. 36, uh, in, in November. And what was that like for you to find out that you had autism at that point in your life? It was a bit of a relief because it was like, oh, I'm not crazy. Flip side of that was, oh, I am crazy, <laughs> but I'm not crazy, but I am crazy. But not long after that, I discovered the book Neurotypes, which introduced me to the concept of neurodiversity. And that's where, I don't know if anybody else has formed this idea, but that's where I've come up with the theory of disorder versus neurotype and how they're both right. Because a lot of times people are like, well, no, it's one or the other. And I'm like, I'm, all, I'm always the one that's like, why are you arguing nature versus nurture when it's obviously both? <laughs> like, yeah. I, I, I find these arguments to be a little bit silly because people, people create, they, they tell the story to themselves and they, they go into camps and they get, go to war with each other. And I'm just like, but what if it's a little bit of each? Yeah. And so my theory is that autism is a neurotype, just like any other neurotype that occurs. It's, it's the way the brain's structured, but then there's disordered components of a neurotype, just like anybody can experience clinical depression or, or depression disorder. Like we all experience the feeling of being depressed, but the disorder is where certain characteristics come up. And the way DSM-5, if I remember correctly, uh, talks about disorders is it's basically some sort of discomfort or problem that's created in the individual's life due to the effects of this disorder. And I'm convinced that, that there are tons of people who are autistic as a neurotype, but due to the way that life happened and the, the, the great things that have happened to them and some of the bad things too, and maybe they learned a little bit this way and that way, that sort of thing, that they're very adaptive and, and they, they've got the skills that they need and, and they're successful. Does that mean that they might have disorder? They, they don't have any disorder components? Not necessarily. Like, Show me a normal person and I'll tell you, you haven't looked very deep. <laughs> Everybody's mm -hmm. got their struggles. That's a part of being human. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's this, we have to accept the pain and struggle that we have. That's where ACT comes in. But at the same time, that doesn't mean we need to perpetuate it. We can save, we can do different, and we can do better. And, and I'm a big proponent of the Do Better movement. I'm a huge proponent of trauma-informed care. I am also cautious. I caution people about trauma-informed care, not because that's a bad idea, but because sometimes people over-pathologize. So again, we're going back to extremes here. It's all about the balance. And in fact, th that reminds me. I So I had an RBT. This is... Um, a registered behavior technician. Yeah, registered behavior technician. This is just before I passed the board certified behavior analyst exam. And he was, he was asking me about why are we doing things different with this client compared to all these other clients? And it's one of those little bing light came on and I started making connections. And I'm talking about this is about balance. Like some people struggle with rigidity and other people struggle with structure. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, a lot of people say autistics, all oh, they need structure in order for them to, and I'm like, mm, not necessarily, like you don't have to have rigid structure. It's about being balanced in this. And so the reason why different kids receive different supports and why different kids are taught different ways is because maybe one person is imbalanced in this way and we need to help them bring back to center and to be balanced. So that way they can access the reinforcement that they want without having to resort to behaviors that harm themselves and others. And this kid over here is, is imbalanced in another way. And so we need to bring them back to balance. And at the end of the day, behavior analysis is education. It's the science of learning. Mm-hmm. And, and the science of learning still needs to learn. Like we're not done. Like the science is not settled And any behavior analyst out there who says it, I'm like, you are, you are talking about a religion, not a science. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like right. we have to continuously strive to improve because if we don't, then we defeat the purpose. Yeah. And by the way, you know, congratulations. I know you just passed your exam. Thank you. And that's a huge accomplishment. I know all the hard work that it takes to get there. So that's a hard test. (laughs) (laughs) So, as you mentioned earlier, there are some autistic people who are part of the neurodiversity movement who are against applied behavior analysis. I think it's harmful in forcing people to behave like neurotypicals. What do you say in response to that? If there's behavior analysts who are trying to get be autistic individuals to behave like neurotypicals, they're wrong. And those individuals in the autism community who have that concern are very much right in having that concern. And we need to listen to them. Now, the flip side to that is there's a lot of anger. There's a lot of rage. And when you allow anger and rage to fuse with you, it narrows your view and it prevents you from being able to see the whole picture. And I'm speaking from experience here. I'm not speaking hypothetically. And my, my appeal to those people is to please stop judging all of a science because of the bad behavior of some people within the science. That isn't me saying not all ABA, because I know a lot of people get angry when, when that term is, comes out. And my response is, all ABA is responsible. Because until it is 100% stopped, we are all responsible for those behaviors and attitudes that those behavior analysts do. And the board, Behavior Analysis Certification Board needs to take a firm stance on this. Yeah. And needs to say that... Forced compliance, one, is not a evidence-based practice. There's no evidence to show that forced compliance does anything other than act as a punisher and turn the individuals who utilize forced compliance into agents of punishment, it, which our research shows that when you have punishers and agents of, compl- agents of punishment, you have unintended consequences of punishment. And those unintended consequences of punishment can loosely be rolled into the idea of trauma. Neuropathways form. There's there's neurological damage that's done. There's different responses that occur. Behavior analysis is a, a science of description. We describe what we see. And so we don't try to explain. But at the same time, just because we're a science of description doesn't mean that we can't learn the sciences of explanation. And neuropsychology, evolutionary psychology, endocrinology, 
all these other things, they all apply because the act of reinforcement is describing what happens when a neural pathway forms. It describes what happens when dopamine or epinephrine, norepinephrine is released. It describes what happens when serotonin is released in the brain and the body. And the reason I bring up evolutionary psychology is because the number one failure of behavior analysts when they try to teach or train or program whatever word you want to use a autistic individual to behave like a neurotypical individual, what they're really trying to do is they're trying to alter the person's innate attributes. Mm -hmm. Now we're a mix, like going back to nature versus nurture, we're a mix of nature and nurture. And so there's a lot of behaviors that autistics or autism spectrum disorder individuals experience that are a combination of their nature, what they're innately born with and the consequences that have occurred. But stimming is one of those ones where it is a ontogenic. And I think I'm using that right. An ontogenic uh, property. It's something that's an eight and every human stems just because autistics stem more doesn't mean other humans don't. My favorite example of, of automatic negative reinforcement, which is a stem. Can you explain? Yes. Yeah. So there's four functions of behavior, access, attention, escape, avoidance, which is kind of the same. You can escape or try to avoid something if you know what's coming up, and then automatic or sensory. I don't like using the term sensory because all stimulus is sensory, so I prefer automatic as the term. So automatic reinforcement a lot of times is referred to as you do it because it feels good. So cases of automatic reinforcement, you eat something because it's sweet. It's automatically reinforcing you. Sex is automatically reinforcing. Breathing is automatically reinforcing. You want to breathe. It feels good to breathe. It feels good to swallow. Well, automatic negative reinforcement, ne positive means something's being added. Not, not as in positive perception, but like positive as in I add something plus. Well, negative is something is being removed. So something's being taken away. So automatic negative reinforcement is alleviation of internal pressure. A great example that I just thought of now, and I'm going to start using it moving forward, is when you're holding your breath and you need to breathe. And you take that big breath when you come out of the water or you, you know, after you go through that tunnel, if you played that holding your breath through the tunnel kid uh, game as a kid, that's, it's taking away, it's alleviating the pressure. Um, it can also be a little positive too, because you're, you're adding something to it, but it's also alleviation. So it's positive and negative, but my favorite example of negative reinforcement that's only negative is that huff of frustration. <sighs> you feel pressure building inside your body. You feel frustration. And it has to do with our verbal behavior, but that huff alleviates it. Those people who feel like they just always have to say something, and they say it even when nobody's around, even when they, they, they don't think anybody's observing them, that's an automatic negative because it's alleviating some sort of internal pressure. And that's a big deal. And a lot of stimming is that when I'm feeling a lot of internal pressure and it doesn't have to be bad pressure, I chew my nails real lot, like a ton. And if I don't plan ahead and have some gum, it's going to be bad. And even then, sometimes gum isn't quite enough because there's a sensory on the end of my finger and in my mouth. Yeah. And I'll give you an example, a really intense movie. 
that I'm just into and I'm 100% there and I don't even notice that I'm going at my fingernails. It doesn't have to be a bad pressure, but it's still a pressure. And that's, I think we need to, as a, as a science and not just as a science, but all human services that work with individuals who are autistic, we need to understand this idea that unless the stimming is causing physical harm to the individual or to others, and I mean real physical harm, that it really shouldn't be a target for trying to reduce or, or, or get rid of. Mm -hmm. And I'll give you a real example of that. I knew a, a, a client who would go like this with his hand. He, he pierces, put his fingers together and, and make them all pointy. And he would tap his chin over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And it actually resulted in him getting some really bad infections hmm. because he kept on, it, it would, it would hurt him. It would, it would cause him to bleed and he got some really, really awful infections. So we had to figure out some other ways of helping to alleviate that, that pressure. Flip side of that though, is that he was experiencing a lot of pressure because of an environment. And interestingly, this individual, his parents were going through a divorce at the time. And once the divorce had been finalized and there was some separation, stimming reduced. Mm. Didn't stop, but it reduced to the point where he wasn't hurting himself. We continued working on acceptance and that sort of thing, and it reduced further. Like acceptance of others to him, of including him, and it reduced further. And, it, and, it, and it, I don't know if that it stopped because I, I haven't seen him in a while and I don't know what his progress is, but this is a, a, over a course of three years that I worked with him. Yeah. And so I got to observe the change. And part of the change that I observed was when I was able to apply behavior analytic principles. But the, the thing, the reason why I was such a great special ed teacher, because I was told even before I learned the behavior analysis that I'd work miracles although I got better at it afterwards, I turned into a real miracle worker because I could pull it out on command, which is fun. Um, but the reason I, that I was able to be so successful was because my core foundational value was treat them like a person. Yeah. And that included going up to bat and pushing back to, against every single parent, adult, teacher who held them to impossible standards. Because, and, and this is an important thing, a lot of times when a kid is identified with some sort of label, peers can get away with the same behavior. A kid shouts out in class, teacher ignores it. My student shouts out in class, they're storming down the hall, telling me all about it. it and it took a lot of work to get to that point. But before I left Canyon View Middle School, I had almost all the teachers on board with me. And we had almost 100% inclusion of our mild, moderate kids. I didn't work with a severe population as much, but they were definitely, it was generalizing that there were some positive benefits that were coming from that. But the reason I left was because there were a couple holdouts who wouldn't, a couple teachers, and the administration. They weren't. And I was getting to a point where I was going back into uh, depression and I was having such a hard time and I, and, and I couldn't, I couldn't continue with that. So I decided that the best thing to do for me was to change my environment because I need to get out of a situation where I was seeing myself spiraling. And, and I, 
I just, I worry about those kids a lot. And I, and I hope things, especially with COVID, especially yeah. with COVID. Yeah. About not programming to reduce stimming. I think there is a movement in reformed ABA, uh-huh. it might be called, to really look at the autistic person's values and respect that they might just be doing something because it is helping them, it's helping their body self-regulate. Uh-huh. And even when it comes to what's so-called like tantrum or meltdown behavior or all of these challenging behaviors that are really just a form of communication. And I totally get what you're saying about the BACB taking a stance. And I'm even wondering if maybe they should say something to address and acknowledge all of the people who have had ABA, like the bad ABA, and who are now traumatized and make some kind of like apology or something. I don't know if it's the BACB's responsibility, but I feel like there just needs to be some kind of public statement. And I wonder if that would help bridge the gap between the angry autistic people and the people who are actually trying to do good with ABA. Yeah. So the the term you're looking for is trauma-informed behavior analysis, TIBA. Okay, thank you. That's the behavior analysis that you're talking about, the reformed. The BACB is is an organization and they will respond they will respond the way that organizations respond. And I'm going to kind of leave it at that because I don't want to stick my foot in my mouth. Okay. I understand. But what really needs to happen is all behavior analysts need to be responsible. We all need to say that while this is happening, we are responsible and we take ownership of it. Even if my actions aren't doing that. And have I made mistakes? Yes. Yes, I have. In fact, one of the mistakes that that really got me thinking was when I was a special ed teacher before I even started behavior analysis and I was working with a student and I pushed him really hard and he broke down into tears and it hit me what I had just done. And I burst into tears and apologized to him over and over again. I said, I am so sorry. I screwed up and I'm still in contact with that family. And, he, and hopefully he still likes me because uh, not that a not that a kid liking me is is the important thing because I want them to be successful, but I'm still in contact with them. And, and the last few interactions I had were always positive. And he's actually reached out to me a few times, and that's that sort of thing. But like we all make mistakes, and we all do things that are wrong. Parents, I know you get tired, you get exhausted. It's hard. This is difficult. I wouldn't wish this sort of challenge on anybody and I've lived it. I've lived it from both ends uh, from, from the teacher therapist point of view and from the student and not the parent yet, but I'm excited to be a parent. I know it's going to be challenging and it's okay that you screw up, but own it. Take full responsibility for yourself and treat that person the way you would want to be treated if someone screwed up with you. Apologize. Try to do better. Look for ways to connect with them. Because nothing is more punishing to a relationship than refusal to admit that you made a mistake. And I use punishing both in the common term and the behavior analysis term because 
Punishment means to reduce the likelihood of future behaviors. That's literally all it means. It's like a stimulus following something that its future behaviors are less likely to happen. Well, relationships are a series of behaviors. And if we don't cultivate and reinforce our relationships, then we punish them. And the relationship stops. And this applies for everybody. This applies for, for spousal relationships, friendships, family. If the relationship is punishing, the person will stop participating in it. And I think that's only right. Mm-hmm. But if we can own our mistakes and, our, and our, our errors and we can say, I screwed up and I need to do better. And, I, and I'm, taking, I'm bringing that to you and saying, I am going to try to do better then we can change things and alter things. And the same thing goes for the entire field, the entire field of behavior analysis. I am an autistic BCBA and I am responsible for what happened to other autistics that caused trauma. I am responsible and I am going to stand against it. And we have to do it together. Otherwise nothing's going to change. Yeah. Well, Brian, I think we can keep talking for hours on these topics, but we are going to have to wrap up here. And I'd like to close with one last question. What advice would you give to other professionals? Because you have this really interesting perspective. As you said, you're an autistic BCBA. You're like a unicorn in a way. Oh, there's a lot of us out there. There are a lot of us out there. I'm just really loud. (laughs) But you're such a great (laughs) asset to the field and to the autistic community. Because you stand in that place of being able to gain trust from both sides, because you are on both sides. And I hate to say it in that way that there are sides, but you live and breathe both things that we're talking about here. I think I can, I can frame it towards everyone, including professionals. Do unto others as they would have done unto them. The golden rule is do unto others as you would have done unto you. Right. Okay. But the reality is, is that we're, we're a broad, diverse, amazingly beautiful species with a lot of variation. And if we do unto others as they would have done unto them, then that is truly understanding. And to go with that, we need to reinforce the change that we want to see in the world. And that starts with us. That's what we need to do. We need to take action because behavior is action. Behavior isn't something that like it's a muscular, glandular, or neuroelectric activity, right? Where it's something that we do. Well, behavior analysis applies to everybody, including ourselves. So we apply it to ourselves. And that part of that application is doing to others as they would have done unto them and reinforcing the change we want to see in the world. And I want to see a world where suffering is optional. I want to see a world where connectivity is the default. I want to see a world where instead of assuming the worst, the worst happens and we can, we can, we can feel it and experience it and worry about it, but we try to go for our best. We need to pivot towards, to use an act term, connectivity. Because suffering, the pain is default. Pain is always going to happen. It's, there's, there's no way to escape it. Living is painful. When we go to sleep at night, our body is trying to deal with the inflammation that comes from 
the gravity pushing down on us and, and us stepping on things that are muscles and joints going out of joint as we walk along that sort of thing or move along however however we move that's our body's way of trying to address it but just because that's the default doesn't mean that it has to be everything meaning is made by us we make the difference through our actions mm-hmm. there was a point where i was um kind of going into nihilism before i i kind of discovered some of these ideas where it's like, life is meaningless, what's the point? Now I go, life is meaningless, except when I make it meaningful. Make it meaningful. Make every day count. There's a TED Talk. The, the speaker, his name is, first name is Jocko. I always forget his last name. He's a former special forces. I think he was a SEAL. He talks about radical or uh, total self-responsibility is total self-accountability and his story is amazing i'm not going to paraphrase the story just watch the ted talk jocko uh j-a-c-k-o i think that's how you spell it anyways um i think i've seen him on joe rogan yeah he's been on joe rogan several times and he is he's an amazing dude and he talks about radical self-responsibility and ownership we have to own ourselves and I can I could say, well, I did this, this, and that because this person did this, this, and that. And you know what? The reality is that's probably true. But I own me. So I own my mistakes. I own the 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 things that I've said in anger and frustration. And I own the things that I've done right. And when I own 100% of me, and I never have to worry about the other person owning them because I own me, period. I'm a king. I'm an emperor. Right? I'm a sovereign of my own nation. I'm the sovereign of Brian. And I can choose to be so sovereign that when somebody else, when they're in anger or frustration, when they lash out against me, instead of me lashing back, I can say, I'm sorry that you're in pain. Mm -hmm. And in practice, you might be surprised because once you do take that ownership, the other person realizes that they can take ownership too. And it becomes a back and forth, just connection, like you're saying, and people can open up and be vulnerable and just stop making the other person wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Brian, thank you for your time. I really admire your outlook on life. Thank you. And I think you are doing a great service to the field with your Bearded Behaviorist platform. How can people learn more about you? They can check me out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and minds.com. Because if I'm going to post on one, I usually post on all of them. It's, it's, it's just a few extra seconds. They are welcome to reach out to me through those platforms. Um, I also have a web page that I spend less time on, and I'm trying to work on making it more of a blog. But the response effort is harder for websites. I, I, I prefer social media. It's, it's very natural for me. But that's beardedbehaviors.com. I have two podcasts now. The first is Obehave, which is focusing on behavior analysis principles for learners. And we have regular podcasts that talk about task list items with trauma-informed behavior analysis incorporated into it. That's important because I feel like that's a weakness in our, in our behavior analysis education, although it's a weakness that's getting stronger. Mm-hmm. So that's very that's very happy for me. And then I just started a new podcast called the Act Natural Podcast. There's another podcast out there called Act Natural. It's a bunch of dudes who talk. Okay. Different act. 
It's well, it's not hacked. It's not hacked at all. Mine's capital A C T act. Okay. So if you go to anchor.fm slash act natural podcast, you will get the Act Natural podcast, which I have interviews lined up. We haven't recorded as of today, September 26th. So stay tuned for those. And one of the people that we have lined up is uh, Dr. Stephen Hayes has agreed to come on and, and we'll be releasing an episode with him sometime in December. He's a busy guy. Oh, cool. I will look out for that one. I'm really excited. He's a, I had a chance to meet him in person. He's a great guy. He's, he's a, a wonderful human. And um, uh, part of the Act Natural uh, podcast is also going to be kind of helping people see neurodiverse populations, not just autism, through a more human frame. So, you know, a little bit like what you're doing, but you're, you're definitely a lot more, much more focused and I'm going to be a little bit more scattered because mm-hmm. I love being scattered. It's fun. It's, it's, it's enjoyable to scatter. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, there you go. Okay, Brian, thank you so much. Appreciate your time and your willingness to really open up for our listeners. I'm sure so many people can relate to some of the things that you were sharing. So thank you. I hope I helped. Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. My conversation with Brian really left me reflecting on my own practice. I must admit that in the early days of my career as a one-on-one therapist, I was trained to implement programs aimed at improving eye contact, reducing hand flapping, and increasing compliance. Although at the time I didn't realize that I could be causing any harm, I'm still definitely not proud of it, and I wholeheartedly take ownership of my actions. As I went on to obtain my BCBA credentials, I learned of the potential trauma that can be caused by targeting goals like these, and like many other clinicians in the field, I turned to a more humanistic approach. For an in-depth commentary on the specific harm related to these goals, please listen to my outro from Episode 3 with Eileen Lam. I've been in the field of ABA for eight years now, and that's not such a long time. Autistic individuals have been traumatized by questionable ABA for decades. If you're also in the field, I encourage you to honestly examine your own practice. Are you targeting goals that align with your client's values? Are you honoring their dignity? In Brian's words, are you treating them like they would like to be treated? We know that the principles of learning that stem out of ABA can make miracles in people's lives. In the right environment, children can learn to communicate, dress themselves, and even grow up to become gainfully employed adults. We must fully acknowledge our wrongdoings if we want to gain trust from others and continue changing lives for the better. Thanks for listening. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community. You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at AutismKnowsNoBorders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please kindly rate the show and leave a review. By doing so, you'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.